Well, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 through 18 is where we'll be this morning. Two weeks ago, we began our series with the question, what makes church essential? What makes church essential? And um, that is, what necessary thing does the church offer the world that no other business, no other organization, no other institution of man uh, can offer the world? And of course, the answer was and is Jesus Christ and will be Jesus Christ. The moment the church stops offering Jesus Christ to the world is the moment that church ceases to really be a church. It no longer functions as what it's supposed to be, and it will die without that proclamation of Christ. The church is essential because Christ is essential, and I know you would all say amen to that. Christ is essential, not only for our salvation, but for our life, our life here on earth. We need Christ. We need him. We need him through all of life's ups and downs. We need him, especially as we've learned in this past year through our, this uh, pandemic, uh, that we need Christ. The church is essential because Christ is essential for us, for this church, for the world. We began by studying how Christ's death is essential. Uh, and then last week, uh, we examined why Christ's life is essential. Uh, today, this morning, on the Sunday before Christmas, uh, we will be considering why Christ's birth is essential. If we're going uh, to be gathering uh, together uh, in these indoor gatherings in the, in the months to come, uh, hopefully we will not do it out of only habit, but we do it because we understand that we do, we. we we take the risk of gathering together um, because we know that we need Christ. And we want to know Christ so that we can be equipped to go out in the world and proclaim Christ. In Christ's birth, or more specifically, the, the word that, we, uh, that theologians like to use with regards to Christ's birth is his incarnation. That is, his conce- beginning really from his conception, but his taking on flesh and blood, his becoming a man. In Christ's birth or in Christ's incarnation, Jesus was perfectly prepared to taste death for everyone. Again, uh, our text comes from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 through 18. We, we looked at Hebrews chapter 9 the first time. We looked at uh, Hebrews 1 last week. Today, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2. And this book uh, reminds us of the superiority of Christ to a, a, a people who were undergoing persecution from Rome probably at this time, there were uh, many occasions for them to want to fall away, to uh, fall away from Christ, maybe to go back to uh, their old ways. But this book is written to convey to the readers, these Jewish background believers, that Christ is better than all the other hopes for salvation, hopes uh, for peace that they could turn to. In chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, uh, the author describes how Christ is better than even the angels. Uh, angels were very, are very powerful beings, perfect, uh, uh, in perfect, at least in many ways, they have uh, uh, powerful, but even 
though as powerful and, uh, that they are, Christ is better than the angels. The angels, for instance, are not the begotten Son of God. The angels are not worshipped, but rather worship the Son of God. And the angels are not ruling at God's right hand. But it's the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who rules at the Son, God's right hand. In these ways, Christ is better than the angels. And though he is better than the angels, that's uh, as the author writes, in verse 9, he writes this, that uh, he's really elaborating on one of the Psalms, how Christ fulfilled, that Christ, though better than the angels, was made for a little while lower than the angels. So that, the author writes in verse 9, he might taste death for everyone. That is, in other words, to say that Jesus Christ was born as a human being so that he might die for everyone, for us, for the world. He couldn't just appear as a theophany. If you look and study the Old Testament, you'll find many Christophanies, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. He could have appeared as, most famously, he appears as the, the messenger of the Lord, or the angel of the Lord. There are times that um, he appears in, in, different, in different ways as the, uh, the, the captain, the host of the army. He could have appeared in, in any of those, many of these manifestations we call Christophanies. And, but he did not appear in those ways. For it was necessary that he appear as a man to die for man, as we're going to learn in this, in this text. He had to become a human. He had to be born as a human being. So in the rest of the chapter, in verse 10 to 18, the author explains how Christ's birth then made him perfectly qualified to taste death for everyone, to die for everyone, that is to every, for every human being. And as we're going to look at this morning, um, for our outline today, we're going to look at six purposes for which Christ's birth or Christ's incarnation is essential. Six purposes for which Christ's birth is essential for our salvation. So I'm going to go through them pretty quickly because there's six items, six, uh, six, uh, just, uh, uh, just a lot of purposes for why Christ was born, and we'll we'll cover it just simply with a sentence: Christ was born as a human in order to do this. So Christ was born as a human, number one, according to verse 10, uh, to perfect the author of our salvation. Christ was born into our humanity to perfect, as a, uh, to perfect the author of our salvation. So let's look at verse 10. For it, was, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, this is a, is a bit of a surprising kind of statement here uh, because it tells us that this idea of perfecting the author of our salvation is we know many of us have a background to understand that the author of salvation is a reference to Jesus, who is the perfect Son of God. We just read that in our call to worship. Call to worship. He was sinless. So why and how does he need to be uh, perfected? Let's try to walk through this very significant verse. Uh, this, in fact, this verse alone could be a full sermon, but... Uh, <laughs> I hope I won't make Nick into one. Anyways, it begins with the necessity of his, this perfection. Necessity of perfection. And that is the introductory phrase, for it was fitting for him, that's how this sentence begins, contains basically the, the main, kind of the main clause, the main statement. 
that it was fitting for him. That's uh, that's the main main kind of statement. Him is a, here is a reference to God the Father. So it was fitting for God. This is, we know it's God the Father because it's for whom and through whom everything in this world exists. We we see that at the end of Romans eleven as well. And so something here it is referred to referred to by it is fitting for God. What then is fitting for God? And it was fitting for God. The answer is in the found in the last phrase of verse ten. It was fitting for God to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That's what's fitting for God. So this uh, something, this thing that is fitting is to uh, for God is to perfect the author of the salvation. The verb uh, fitting, or it was fitting, uh, conveys that which is something that is proper, something that was right, something that's suitable. We could almost say that it's something that was necessary or essential. God in his eternal power, and, and the, just the reminder here of, of who he is, that he, he is the, the goal of all things, he's the, 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 one, the creator of all things, he in his eternal power and wisdom deemed that it was fitting, that it was necessary and needful and essential to perfect the author of salvation. And that's the necessity of perfection. And then there's the pr- purpose for perfection. The purpose for this perfection of the author of salvation is reflected in the phrase, in bringing many sons to glory. In bringing many sons to glory. Basically, the idea is to bring people to the glory of heaven, to the glory of God, in the presence of glorious God. Or we could simply say, to save them. The purpose of perfecting the author of our salvation is in order to save them, to save people. Save the sons, these many sons. So it was fitting for God in order to save many people to perfect the author of our salvation. Here, then, at this point, it's appropriate to note the object of this perfection, and that's the author of salvation. The author of salvation is the one who is perfected by God the Father. The Greek word for author can convey, is, is in our English language, or at least in our NAS author, some of your, if you have uh, other translations, it may say leader. Uh, sometimes it's translated as prince. Uh, and uh, sometimes other, something similar to that. So, but the Greek word for author can basically conveys this idea of a leader. The basic idea is, is someone who leads. Not someone who leads by saying, you do this, you do this, you do this. Someone who's a commander like that. But a leader in the sense of someone who goes before, who leads the way, who is a, a pioneer. It's someone who's an initiator, someone who's an originator. And thus, author is sometimes uh, is an appropriate sense because author is the one who begins writing this salvation or this, this, uh, this salvation that is, belongs to us. The sense is then of a leader who goes, who begins, and goes before us. It is actually only used one other time in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. There it talks about how when, when we run this race that we're to run, you know, casting aside the things that entangle us, we're to fix our eyes on someone. We're, we're, so we're, we're running this race, so we're to keep our eyes. You don't, when you run a race, you don't fix your eyes on someone behind you, right? You fix your eyes on someone's ahead of you, someone who's running ahead. And Jesus is the one who's running, who has run ahead of us. He's the one who's the, are the author and perfecter of faith. So there's that same idea there. We... Jesus leads the way in running this race of life, in fighting this good fight, and we are to look to him as our leader. He's the author and perfecter of our faith and of our salvation. 
Now, he's the, and so he must, he's the object of this perfection. But the means, notice the means of perfection is that the, the, last, uh, the last phrase at the end, it was fitting for God to perfect Jesus through sufferings, through sufferings. Jesus Christ was born to be perfected through sufferings. Note the plural. Not just through suffering, not just through, when we think of Christ and his suffering, probably the greatest suffering is his death. But the fact that it's through sufferings tells us that it's, it's through multiple sufferings that he would endure. As God, he could not suffer. God could not suffer. But as man, when he became man, he would come to know the full experience of humanity's sufferings. He would know the sufferings, and not just knowledge. Of course, God knows it, but he knew it experientially. A lot of times, you know, uh, you know we can know that, oh, someone's going through, what, that what is involved in someone going to cancer. With, but until you have cancer, then you experienced it. You understand and know that in a very experientially way. Christ came, to be, came and was born to be perfected through sufferings through the sufferings of experience that all, that all of mankind endures and experiences. He would know hunger. He would know thirst. He would know temptation. He would know grief and betrayal. He would know injustice and mockery. And he would know pain and agonizing death and many more. Throughout his life, Jesus experienced the sufferings of humanity. And it was, he was perfected through that. It was essential, it was fitting that through his sufferings as a man, that Jesus was perfected to bring us glory. Now, of course, this does not mean that he was, not, he was made somehow morally perfect. For Christ, being the Son of God, was already morally perfect. He was holy, without sin, without any imperfections, certainly. So, this idea of to be made perfect, uh, the, the verb also has this idea of to be made complete. Perfect in the sense that he, he, has, he, beca- he has all that he needs to, com- to, to accomplish a purpose. So he was made complete as a leader who experienced all the things that we experience and yet resisted them, endured them without sin, and then in dying for us, is able to save us. He represents us. And he, most importantly, he helps us in our sufferings. The rest of this passage really fleshes this, this point out, that because he came in, in, the human, in human flesh, he is able to die for us, and, and, but he is also able and to save us, but he's also able to be the high priest who understands and helps us through the sufferings that you and I face in this world. And so the flesh, rest of the pastor will flesh this out. Secondly, then, we learn that Christ was born not only to, to, be, to perfect the author of, salva- of our salvation, but Christ was born to identify with us in verses 11 to 13, to identify with us. Christ was born this way so he would be one with us. Verse 11 to 13, we read this. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, 
And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So, first of all, just to identify who, who is being talked about here is the, the, there are two kind of groups being talked about. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. He who sanctifies is Christ. Hebrews 13, 12 talks about how, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. That he, the one, he sanctifies us through his own blood, through his humanity, his death. And then those who are sanctified in verse 11 here refer to, to believers, to Christians, those who would be redeemed. Hebrews 10.10 10 describes that by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, notice that, with those, that this process of sanctification as he who sanctifies and those who have been sanctified is again through his body, just as it was through his blood. There's a necessity of Christ's humanity in order to sanctify us, that is to save us. It's a, and he, it was necessary for him to come as a human being, to be born as a human, so that he might save us, taste death for us. Verse 11, and, there, and because of that, he who sanctifies and, uh, uh, <clears throat> and those who are sanctified, we all come from one Father, from one Father. We're all one. From one is what literally verse 11 says. The word Father is, is supplied there. Uh, some translation, like NIV, says we're all one family. It kind of gets at the idea. Uh, it's, uh, but the idea is that for, we all come from one source, one origin. We all, have from a, we have, we all share this con- same, uh, same, uh, same, fam- same family origin. Namely, we all come from God the Father. Certainly, uh, we all come from God the Father as being created beings. God, we would not be here if God had not created our first ancestors, and they then in, uh, multiplied and eventually came down to us. But Jesus also came from the Father. He was, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God gave his Son into the world to take on the human flesh. And so he, as well as we, all come from the Father. We're all one. We, we have this common source. That's why he prays to the Father. And he teaches us to pray to the Father. Although he is the sanctifier and we are the sanctified, it says in this verse, in verse 11, that Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers, brethren. Because of our common humanity, because of his flesh and blood that died in our place, because we have this common uh, origin, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Some translations will say, the idea is that um, <clears throat> brothers and sisters. In, uh, in those in New Testament times, you would use brethren simply to refer to uh, the whole congregation. We've sort of lost that, that in, in our English language, and so people are very sensitive about that. So we, the idea is brothers and sisters as a family, as siblings within the family. But uh, and if you understand the Old Testament, or New Testament even, times, brethren would have been enough to simply refer to the whole congregation, men and women, uh, without any uh, slight or insult intended. But Jesus identifies then here with believers in Christ as his brothers and sisters. And to prove this point, the author then uh, of Hebrews quotes three different Old Testament passages. He quotes Psalm 22, verse 22, Isaiah 8, 17, and Isaiah 8, 18. And if you are familiar with Psalm 22, it's a, it's a messianic 
text. <clears throat> so it's there, uh, it, there we find many messianic references of Christ, but it's written by David. And Isaiah chapter 8 is in the middle of some, me- some very major messianic texts. Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, you know, it's those kind of Christmasy verses. verses. So in short, these, these, um, these verses show how both authors, David and Isaiah, are basically a type of Christ. They, their words are a foreshadowing of Christ. In these Old Testament verses, <clears throat> Christ identifies with believers uh, in two ways primarily. First of all, through his worship of God. That's what he says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. And then secondly, through his trust in God. I will put my trust in him. He, he believes in the Lord. This is very interesting that the, the Christ, the Son of God, would say this, I will worship him and I will trust in him. You think about it, does God need to worship anybody? He doesn't, right? God does not need to, be, to, to worship because he's God. He needs to be, he is to, needs to be worshipped. He is the one who is worshipped. Nor does, does God ever need to trust in someone? No, he doesn't. God does not need to trust someone because he's God. He himself has all sufficiency. He uh, doesn't need anyone, doesn't need anything. He's self, completely self-sufficient. He has all power, all wisdom. And so God, in his deity, does not worship, does not trust in that sense because he does not need to. But Christ came in his flesh. He, he came in, and, uh, in his humanity. And as the author of our salvation, as a human being, could lead, be that leader of, our, of, our, of his brethren in worshiping and praising as well as entrusting God. And that's, and that's encouragement. You think about it. Jesus came in his humanity, and in his humanity, God the Son worshiped God the Father, and God the Son trusted God the Father, even as though he is God but it is in his humanity because he took on the weakness of flesh. He, took on, he endured the, all sorts of sufferings in which in his humanity he needed to tr- worship God and he needed to trust God. And that's a great example for us through our weaknesses, through our sufferings. Those are times where, where we may not want to worship God. We may be tempted to not trust in God, but those are times when we need to worship God even more and we need to remember who our God is and we need to trust him and put our trust in God because though we don't understand, though we don't know why, though we don't know how long, God knows and I will put my trust in him because my author of salvation, my leader, my pioneer, our savior in Jesus Christ has done the same. He comes to identify with us in this way. Christ was born, identifies and leads us the way not only in salvation but in worship and trust in the Lord. Thirdly, Christ was born, thirdly, Christ was born, in, according to verse 14, to destroy the, power, the devil's power over us. To destroy the devil's power over us. Let's pick up in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Notice the word children here, therefore, since the children, that that's connects us back to verse 13. 
Jesus identifies he and the children whom God has given me. And so there's uh, the, re- the humanity. <clears throat> and since he and humanity uh, share in flesh and blood, since all humanity, since the children share in flesh and blood, that they're, they're human beings, Christ himself also then had to take on flesh and blood. He partook of the same. He took on flesh and blood just like all the humanity. Why? Indicated by the, the resulting phrase, the result clause, that through death he might render powerless. Another word that means to abolish, destroy. Destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. To destroy the devil. To crush Satan's head is, the, is the, really the ideal here, the picture of fulfillment from Genesis 3. You see, the devil, you will recall, was the one who introduced sin into the world. He was the first one who sinned. He led some of the angels in rebellion against God. So it was he who introduced sin into the universe. But the devil was also the one who introduced sin into the human race. In Genesis 3, when he deceived Eve and tempted both her and Adam to eat of the forbidden fruit. And when they did, all humanity was plunged under the curse of sin and death. From that point on, just as God had said, every, every son and daughter born to Adam and Eve would surely die. As God pronounced in, that, in his curse, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because of sin, every human being must die. And then even upon physical death, we would continue to experience spiritual death. That separation, not just from our body, but a separation from God forever in eternal judgment in hell. <clears throat> and this, this power of death that death had was something that no human being could overcome. All of us inevitably die. And once we die, not only are we powerless against death itself, physical death, we are all powerless against spiritual death. For once we died, we would join Satan's eternal destiny as well. We would join Satan, who has the power of death, join with him in eter- for eternity in, in his destiny of hell and eventually the lake of fire. But Christ came took on flesh and blood, and died in our place. And his death for us defeated Satan and his power. Through Christ's death and his resurrection, he sets us free from from death's power, from the power of death. And although physical death is still a reality for us because we still dwell in the flesh and blood, it was flesh and blood that still still has the presence of 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 a sin nature, this power of death no longer it no longer is no longer has it has no power over us in Christ. Jesus actually wrote about this in or Jesus said spoke about this in John chapter eleven verse twenty five twenty six a very familiar passage whenever we go to funerals sadly, but Jesus said uh, to her, "I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies." And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
The reality is that Jesus promised because he is the resurrection, because he died, and we're, next week we're going to look at this, the, the, uh, uh, how Christ's resurrection is essential. But because he is the resurrection and the life, if you believe in and you put your trust in him, he says, you will live even if you die. Even if you physically die, you're still going to live. You're not going to die forever. You're going to still live on, and you're going to live on with, him, with, with Christ in heaven. And everyone who lives and believes in me says, we'll really never die. You're never going to die in that spiritually, in that sense, we're going to die forever and separate, uh, separate forever from, from God the Father in hell because you're going to experience eternal life in the presence of glorious God and his son, Jesus Christ. That is the promise that Jesus makes that's how his death and his resurrection would set us free from the power. He destroyed the devil's power. The real, but the important question is, do you believe this as he asks in this text? Do you believe that Christ has defeated the devil's power, destroyed the devil's power over you? And we're reminded of this because this Saturday is Christmas. In that day, God gave the world and God gave you and me the greatest gift of all, his son. His son took on flesh and blood to die in your place, in our, our place, and rose from the grave to save you from the power of death, the curse of sin and death. The question is, do you believe this? Do you trust your trust in Christ? And if you do, then I know that you'll have many reasons to rejoice this Christmas season quite related to this third purpose that Christ was born to destroy the devil's power over us is the fourth purpose. They really could be one and the same, but I wanted to describe a little more because it's such something that uh, all of us experience, will likely experience. And that's Christ was born to set us free from the fear of death. Verse 15. Not only did he come, uh, was he made flesh and blood so that he might destroy him who had the power of death, but also, verse 15, and that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Because of the power of death, humanity throughout the ages has had a fear of death. And you can just, uh, and I think if, and many of us, it gets to that place in our life where we realize our mortality, and then you just kind of wrestle, at least for, for a season, about, wow, I'm going to die. And what is that, what is that, you know, and all that that in, entails. And I, or I might die. A lot of times you get into a, a serious illness and you think that's possible. And it's probable. Uh, COVID has kind of brought that back to into our forefront, that the, the potential to, to die, even though in reality, we've all been dying anyways, but there's just that moments in our life where, where death becomes very fo- um, at the forefront, and we become afraid of death. And that's what COVID has sort of done for us. It's reminded all again of us again to be afraid of death. Why, why we're afraid of death? You know, the reality is that we're afraid of death. Humanity as a whole, you may not, and if you're young and you you're not afraid of death, and I, I, you, know, it's, you know, it's okay. You'll get there eventually, I think. Or at least you'll, uh, I, I can't, uh, but uh, you eventually wrestle with it. Is that, because no one knows what's on the other side. You know, you can, as far as we can tell, we, 
just from this side of, of uh, you know, from a, just our, with our eyes, we, people simply seem to, to cease to exist. They just uh, they breathe their last breath and they are gone. They don't usually wake up. After all the years of living, breathing, working, raising, saving, spending, accomplishing, and then we die. We disappear like a vapor. And that's it. But what if it's not? What if all these stories we hear about heaven and hell are real? How do I know? What if it's because uh, what if it depends on how much good deeds I have to do? What if it depends upon uh, some you know some something that I, I was supposed to do, but I didn't I didn't know about it? These and these this kind of this uncertainty about death creates a lot of fear in many of us. Uh, one commentator, Ian Dugid, in his uh, book, in his commentary on this uh, on Hebrews, he lists five reasons for why we fear death: the fear of pain, and no one wants an agonizing death; the fear of separation from what we know, from the ones we love, we don't want to lose them; the fear of the unknown, which what's on the other side; the fear of non-being, and the fear of everlasting punishment. I would add, just even from my own uh, wrestlings and my own thoughts, number six, the fear of being helpless as we die. And seven, the, the fear of loss. The fear of loss, of loss of all sorts of things. Whatever you treasure else in this world, you lose. It's hard to lose some of those things that you treasure. In death, we lose everything in this world that we hold dear. And there's probably likely other reasons for why we fear death. And the fear of death is a reality, it is, a, is, a, is a real trial that all of us inevitably face. One day, unless we just suddenly just die, we, just unexpectedly, we will come to that place where we begin to realize that we, our body's failing and that we're going to die. We don't know when, no one knows when except God, but we're going to die. Maybe for some even, uh, some 25% of us, a quarter, nearly a quarter, will die from cancer. It's quite a lot. That's the statistics that I dig, dug up at one point. You know, what is that going to be like when you hear that news and know that you may die from this? And that will be a fearful time I would for, for any normal person. And the fear of death, it will be a trial that will test you. It will be a suffering, another suffering that we will endure, and it will be at times overwhelming, I'm sure. Especially as we begin to, to sense the, the day drawing near. However, we learn here in this verse that Christ came as a human being to face death so that he would set us free from our fear of death. So that, there's, that we don't have to just say, oh, fear of death is just normal, so let's just oh, be afraid. No, there's an, there's an answer to our fears because Christ came in the flesh and blood to die for us. The fear of pain, well, Christ came and to be our strength and our comfort. Fear of separation from our loved ones, well, death, we, we can know that death ushers the Christian to the one who knows you and loves you most. Fear of the unknown, fear of non-being, fear of everlasting punishment. Well, Christ's death and resurrection makes the believer's destiny, destiny sure. 
We will be, as soon as we close our eyes for the final time and die and breathe our last breath, if those who believe in him will be in glory, in God's presence. Christ has promised to take us to be with him. Fear of being helpless? Then we look to our author of our salvation. Like Christ on the cross, we can entrust our souls to our all-powerful God. Fear of loss, things that are, and not just you know, things that are useless, but things that we treasure. And probably the most will, be, the, will not will have, feel the pain of loss of their relationship with their, their children or, or their spouse. They're going to leave them here. But even whatever the fear of loss that we may have, we remember that Christ is our greatest treasure. And he is better than anything we've gained in life or will lose in death. These truths about Christ and his humanity and his death for us are, are meant to, to comfort us, to set us free from the fear of death that enslaves us. The world responds to the fear of death in very numerous ways. Uh, people will do super superstitions. You know, I was thinking about it the other day. I was reading my AARP magazine, or well, the web article. You guys read it too, right? Basically, the whole thing is all about uh, how to avoid death. You know, yeah, it seems like a lot of times. Uh, how to avoid dying young. So I read again, oh, six, seven foods to eat so that, you know, you save off, uh, you know, to live longer, etc. It's always like saying, and trust me, I read those articles, like, oh, yeah, because <laughs> I, I, I don't want to die, and so I want to live long, and I, and I want to be able to, well, you know, I want to live longer so I can be here for my family, etc., all that stuff. So you read these things, and they tell you all these reasons, so, and the, you know, there's that, those kind of physical aspects of, of living longer, trying to stave off death, but it's still going to come. Um, some of us people do turn to spiritual things, to superstitious things. They're gonna, they're gonna say, oh, you know, ooh, we talked about in our pastoral staff morning meeting. Uh, a lot of uh, Asian cultures, uh, maybe mostly Chinese, will avoid, you know, certain numbers so that you can, you know, the, the, the number four. You know, don't, don't don't put the number four on your house because you might die. So you you know, don't uh, have the number four and you get number four in your car. Oh, you might die. Uh, you know, all these weird things uh, like that. Superstitions that reflect the fear of death. And I'm sure every culture has it. In America, we don't really have superstition, but what we do is we, we handle the fear of death by just sort of trying to, to hide it. We, we hide it. We mask it. Uh, you, just, um, you, you just don't get to see people dying uh, left and right. It's just not... We, we put them in homes, even when in, in burials. We, uh, they're nicely prepped at, at mortuaries and uh, memorial homes and all that. Uh, it's just not something that we see. Uh, we hide it, basically. But the reality is Christ came uh, to, to set us free from the fear of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, 55 says this great promise. But when this perishable will put on the imperishable, that is when this earthly body puts on the, the spiritual body, the spiritual body that will never be destroyed, and this mortal will put on immortality, when we no longer are mortal but we put on immortal, have the eternal life, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The reality is that we face the fear of death, but the, because of Christ's 
death on the cross, who was born to, because Christ was born to die for us, he died so that he would set us free from the power of death and the fear of death. He, he defeated death so that when we die and when we enter into eternity, we will be able to say with, with, with confidence that death is swallowed up in victory. We will know it for sure. For now, we know it by faith in the, according by the word of God. Death is appointed for all. We looked at that last in Hebrews 9. It is appointed for man once to die. But death for the Christian is not defeat. Death for Christians is victory. Because in that moment, in that last final trial, as we put, keep our trust in the Lord, as our trust is in him who came and, and identified with so that he would die for us, as long as our trust is in him, death it becomes the moment of victory. Death becomes the finish of the race. Death becomes the completion, the victory of the fight. Death becomes the entrance into glory. Even It's from suffering to glory, just as Christ went came and is with example. The author of our say led the way by enduring suffering before he was taken up into glory. And that is our example. Fifthly, Christ was born to be our high priest, to be our high priest. Verse 16 and 17, Christ was born to be our high priest. For verse 16, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, Jesus did not come as a, as a Christophany, right? He did not come as an angel because he, not come, he, because he did not come to save angels. He came to give help to save the sins of Abraham. And so this, this descendants of Abraham being uh, a reference to, uh, likely to the believing Jewish audience of Hebrews, but because of passage like Galatians 3.29, Gentile Christians are also spiritual descendants, seed of Abraham. But the point is that Jesus came not to help angels, but he came to help humans. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. And thus he had to be made like his brethren in all things. So therefore, since he came to help Humans, he had to be made like his brethren. Human in all things. That's why he had to not just he didn't he God just God could have just brought him made him into a man uh, at 30, 30 years old and then he, and just plop them on earth and then he can start you know his ministry and then die. But he had to be made like his brethren in all things to experience the weakness of humanity. When is the humanity at its weakness? When it's at its, and seemingly in these days, the most in danger, when in the womb, from the moment of conception, already endangered. But Jesus Christ came to experience the weakness of all humanity from conception, from being a, a fe- embryo fetus in the womb to being born as a little child in the weakness of, a, in, in, of board birth in a feeding trough in a, 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 of, a, of an animal stable to endure, to experience the, the limitations, the finiteness of man uh, even uh, of, of his, in his knowledge and even his power as he grew as a boy and then to a teen and then to a 
to a, a man. And all throughout, he experienced all the weaknesses. He, he was made like his brethren in all things. Experienced all that we experience in our humanity. He lost his baby tooth and he got his permanent tooth. He grew more bones in his hands. His muscles grew strong. His front part of his brain started developing, allowing him to have that more self, better self-control of his body and being. He became all things. Not, and when we talk about <clears throat> becoming all things like his brother, really it's all things in our weakness. But that really is what it is to be man, is to be weak. And he became a human like us in all things. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So that he could act as a high priest for us. When we studied Hebrews chapter 9, we learned that Christ was a, was a better high priest, right? Unlike the Old Testament priests who had to enter into the holy place yearly to offer sacrifice for the sins of Israel on the Day of Atonement, Christ entered the holy place of heaven once and offered himself his own death as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And because, and it was only, he could do this only because he was like his brethren in all things. And as we looked at last week, he had lived this righteous, perfect life, this, this a sinless life, so that he could die a perfect life. And, and not only pay for our sins, but be able to impute to us his perfect righteousness. The death of, and he, because he was human, he could die as our representative, as our, as in our place. The death of animals could never save us. Even the death of an angel, even one of the unfallen angels, would not have saved us. But the death of a man, a perfectly sinless, infinite God-man, could pay the penalty of our sins and satisfy God's wrath upon our sins. And Christ did that to the full. And he came and endured suffering so that he would be fully prepared and equipped to do just this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, 12 says similar, very similar truth. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Christ in his humanity, as our perfect high priest, could offer one sacrifice for sins for all time. And he is sat down. That means... He doesn't, he's resting. His work is finished. He's not going to get up again to come and offer more sacrifices. He came to be our, he was born to be our high priest, someone who would represent us, and only in his humanity could he represent humanity. And lastly, but not least, Christ was born to aid us in our temptations, to aid us in our trials. Verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You see here, uh, just kind of brings, kind of brings us all the way back uh, to verse 10. It talks about how it was to perfect the author of the salvation through sufferings. And since and the, those sufferings, it says he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, 
refers back to all the, su- the sufferings he endured. And that he, in, in sufferings, and it reminds us this really this, this principle that's true that in humanity's sufferings are times of temptation, are times of testing, there are times of trial. Think about it. Every time you went through suffering, it was it not a trial for you? Was it not a test to your faith? Did it not test how you would respond in that situation? Whether you would choose to sin or whether you would choose to, to do that which is right and continue in holiness. Every, every suffering is, serves that purpose. Every trial serves that purpose. We can go to James and take a look at that, but we, we don't have time. Jesus was born as a human and was fully human so that he could face temptations as we face them. And he was tempted just as you and I are tempted. But he, unlike us, never gave in to temptation. He never gave in to sin. The most significant of the sufferings and temptations that Jesus faced was probably at the beginning and end of his ministry. In the beginning, if you recall, he was led into the wilderness where for a period of 40 days and nights he was fasting. And during that time, he, he faced temptations from the devil himself. And Satan came and tempted him in, in, in the three major categories of sin and, testing, and tempting him with the lust of the eyes. I'm going to give you all these kingdoms. The lust of the flesh. The boastful pride of life. By the way, lust of the flesh being represented in the bread, turning the bread, turning the stone in the bread so that he could satisfy his hunger and then to most probably like to cast himself from uh, the, the top pinnacle of the uh, temple. But with each temptation, with each, these, uh, with each type of temptation that he was offered by Satan, even in his weakness, in his hunger, in his thirst, he's resisted. Why? By trusting in God and in God's word. It is written, it is written, it is written. And thus the author of salvation set the pattern for you and me. Not only was he tempted in the beginning of his ministry, but for certainly he was tempted near the end of his ministry. During his passion, he faced the suffering of his impending death. We remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, there he prayed agonizingly with tears, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. There was a man who was wrestling with the fear of death, the reality of death, and yet he did not give in to temptation. He said, yet not my will, but thine be done. And then, of course, on the cross, when he experienced the greatest agony of all, when God in his pour out out his wrath upon him for for our sins, and when God turned his back on him and he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ experienced the ultimate suffering, a separation from God, so that you and I would not have to face that experience, that suffering. He suffered these temptations, these sufferings throughout his life on earth so that he could become then a, a merciful high priest for us who not, who comes to our aid, he understands what we're going through whenever we're tempted, whenever we go through trials. 
Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, we can draw near to Jesus when we face temptations and suffering because Jesus in his humanity knows our suffering. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He has been tempted in all things. He's, he's experienced all that you've experienced, and yet he resisted the temptation. He endured the suffering, and therefore he's able to come to your help. He knows what you're going through as you go through your trials and temptations. Oftentimes when we go through sufferings, our friends come along and, and, they, and they in their sincerity offer us words. But sometimes words, and sometimes even those words often fall flat, especially if they themselves have not gone through that suffering. You know, I, I, my last, this past year, uh, I think it's the past year, I've started to have tinnitus in my ears. You know, and you know, it's, it can't kill you. It's just ringing in your ears. Constant ringing in your ears. High-pitched noise ringing in your ears. And um, sometimes loud, sometimes quiet, but it's always there. Um, and it could drive you crazy. Yeah. And you go to your doctor and they say, oh, yes, it's okay, Mr. Tam, you know, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's just you're losing hearing, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, these people will, just say, oh, will tell you that. Oh, it's, just, well, it's, it's, it's just it's normal and common. It's common. Probably some of you have it. And, but when people who don't have it express it, they'll say, yeah, oh, thanks, yeah. But I found greatest encouragement when someone else, as I was talking about my trials, someone else who has said, oh, I have it too. I had it too. Uh, and, uh, you know, and just being able to understand someone and just how they tr- had trusted the Lord, walked with the Lord through their trials has been encouraging to me. To an infinite degree, Christ has gone through all our trials. And he understands and when you feel like no one understands my problem, no one, I'm alone in this. And then we all get like that at times. No one else understands. It's just me. No one cares. Or me, no one cares. You know? It's just me. Well, Christ cares. Your high priest cares. Your high priest knows and he understands what you're going through. He himself came and experienced all the sufferings of humanity so that he could be your high priest, so that he could sympathize with you, so that he could help you. Jesus knows what you're going through. You can and you need to turn to him and find grace in your time of need. And he will come to your aid. And that's the last purpose for which Christ was born. In these ways, we've learned today how Jesus Christ, why Jesus Christ was born, why he came to, to be born as a human being, ultimately to taste death for everyone. But in tasting death for everyone, he also fulfilled all these other all these other these other purposes. The reality is, brother, sister, the world needs Jesus Christ, and the church is the body of Christ. And the church alone has the responsibility to proclaim Christ to the world who doesn't want him nor seek him. And Christmas to the world is just decorations. And I walk up and down the street, I just see tree after tree, light after light. I see all sorts of decorations, and, and I wonder in my heart, do these people know that Christmas is about Christ? Or is it about Frosty the Snowman or, or you know, uh, you know some, the Grinch on your, on your, as an inflatable? Not that I have anything against those things, okay? But do they know? It's our job as a church to proclaim Christ. And when we understand why Christ was born, then we can proclaim this reality to our world. 
And I know we're going to have opportunities to do that in our family gatherings. Many of us have family gatherings. Many of us have company parties. We have you know, uh, holiday gatherings with friends and family. And those are all, all opportunities for us to proclaim Christ. Everything in our world, all the sufferings that we experience are trials. But Christ came as a human being to experience the trials you and I face, to be made perfect, to be complete and equipped so that he can not only die for us, but so that he could understand us, to be a, to a, be a merciful and faithful high priest. <clears throat> we can always turn to him, and we should always turn to him for all things, for salvation, from sin, for deliverance from death, for freedom from fear, for strength against temptation, and for mercy and sufferings. And he is faithful, for he was born to accomplish these purposes according to God's plan. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for Christ and his birth. And as we reflected upon this passage from Hebrews, it grow in, our under- grow in us in our appreciation for why Christ was born and why Christ's, his birth was essential, but really why Christ is essential and that he came to be born to taste death for everyone, not only for, for us, but for the world. We pray that this, you would help us to, to have opportunities to proclaim this message and share this message with others, and that you would draw all whom you have chosen to yourself. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.